pretty much sheltered in place. And I haven't been home this long in probably 25 years, and I like it. You like it, you said, or you don't oh, like, I it? like it? I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I kind of wonder if I'll, uh, if I'll re-enter. I, in fact, I can tell you that I will not go back to what I was doing. Yeah. Because this is, I love not traveling. <laughs> Hey everybody, Pre-Accident Podcast. I am your host of the pod, the pod man. Let's get comfortable. Let's just, uh, let's relax a little. Uh, man, I don't know. It's a, it's a crazy world in which we live in and anxiety and stress and grief are words that I've thought more about during this pandemic than I normally probably would think of just because how people are manifesting what's going on really changes based upon the people and the context and everything that's happening, which when you say it out loud, doesn't sound that smart, really. I mean, (laughs) I never really claimed to be smart, so I'm not worried about that part, but it's so interesting to me at a, at a personal level and at a professional level, just how people are handling what's going on around them and what it looks like and what it feels like and what's happening. And the changes are so fast. And this is a, this is a characteristic of complexity and of, of uncertainty and they all influence everything else. So one it's one change influences many other different changes. And, and you see this, this process of this interconnectedness creating these incredible pressures, uh, the pressure to start work versus the pressure to be safe, which Eric Hollinger would call efficiency, thoroughness, trade-off, but you're living it now, you guys. I mean, you can read his book. It's a great book, or you can just open your eyes and look at what's going on. Um, it's, it's, it's remarkable and I'm remarking on it. So there you go. It's, it's, I'm never usually at a loss for something to say because I always have some story to tell from somewhere, but it's so interesting to me now just to see how, how people are being people and, and what anxiety looks like when, when it manifests themselves in the people around you or the people near you. And, and quite honestly, how time loses meaning. And time, it's like a roller coaster. Some parts of the day are really fast and some parts of the day are really slow. And I can't tell when that's going to be and when it's not going to be. It's, uh, it's, it's, this whole thing is just an experiment and we're learning as we go. I, I believe we call that adapting in a complex environment, but it's really made me think about all the time and energy I've spent in my whole career in understanding how people are prepared for uncertainty. And then you get into it and you realize, wow, capacity, the ability to do something, that capacity to to act, that's a pretty powerful tool. And where I have capacity, I'm at my most comfortable levels. When I don't have capacity, I'm at my least comfortable levels, which kind of leads us into today's podcast. So today, today we're going to talk to my buddy Nip and Arnold. And if you don't know Nip and you need to, he's worth looking up. He's, he's a mariner. He's a, he's a, well, he's also a PhD 
uh, who studies reliability and resilience. But but his his lifetime has been in being a vessel captain, and he put a post on LinkedIn, which I don't claim to know anything about nor even how to use it, and he got like twenty thousand comments, twenty thousand comments, which kind of blew him away. And what's so interesting is is the post was on life-saving rules. And all he asked was a question, and then he put a little paper at the back of it. But he, but he asked, at what point do life-saving rules become life-threatening rules? And that's the story he wanted to tell us today. And, of course, I'm in because the one thing I've seen a million examples, and I do mean that, a million, a million examples of is how rules three months ago that were held sacred and vital to the organization's ability to succeed went away really, really quickly. The minute uncertainty, excuse me, uncertainty, I can't even talk. The minute uncertainty became a part of the system and actually created this need to adapt and how I've known my whole life. You've known this too. Safety and reliability don't live in rules. Rules don't remove uncertainty. Uh, they don't, and they never have. But now we're getting a big lesson in just how true that is. And it happens with Nippon telling a story. And so it's always worth it to hear a friend tell a story. And that's exactly what this podcast does, is it takes a moment and just listens to a story and, and a little discussion as well. So I, I think you'll like it. This is uh, Nippon and myself in a little conversation about stairwells and handrails and life-saving rules and life and complexity. Listen, see what you think. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Tell your friends, uh, everybody tell one other person to listen, especially to these. These are really comforting in times of high stress. I'll talk to you a little on the backside of this, but here's Nippin and the story. I promise I'll shut up. I promise. I we will get to the story. Here it comes. I promise. Let's start this baby up. Let's get it rolling. Okay. Uh, let's do that. Well, uh, it's it's quite a funny one, actually. Uh, it goes back about the beginning of March. Uh, I was, uh, I visited one of, uh, one of my, uh, one of the sh- shipping companies in Aberdeen, and uh, I visited the guys there. On the way back, uh, I was told, okay, goodbye, take care, stay healthy. And uh, by the way, don't hold that handrail as you go down. <laughs> I just looked at the guy and said, what? What did you just say? I mean, this is the organization that actually, you know, makes sure that uh, people get an induction. And as part of the induction, uh, you're told that you have to always hold the handrail as you get into the, the building. And uh, that was quite interesting, actually. I saw a huge shift in the way we are looking at handrails uh, from this point onwards. And I came back, I reflected on it, and I just put a LinkedIn post there. And you wouldn't believe, Todd, within maybe two or three days, the post hit something like 15,000 views. It was crazy. Uh, So the way I put it is that um, uh, how life-saving rules can also become (laughs) life-threatening. And uh, the curiosity really was that, you know, uh, just to, to understand uh, the, the, the whole idea of rules and how rules uh, can change so quickly in the face of uncertainty. And uh, so that was a starting point. 
And then I kind of uh, delved a little bit deeper into it and I said, okay, let's, let's have a look at handrails in the first place and see, you know, we have been talking about handrails for a very long time now. Let's start, let's try and understand, do handrails really save lives as in preventing people from, people from falling off from the stairs? Uh, look at some, some of the research that has been done in, in the last, apparently about 60, 70 years. Um, so I looked at some research papers and here's some, some statistics on that. So one of the studies says 75% of stair falls happen when no handrails were present. Another one says 16% of accidents happen because of missing handrails. Then there's another one uh, in the 1960s which says 44% of stair accidents happen amongst elderly people that could be avoided if there were handrails on the staircases. Then there's another study in 1978 which says that the staircase incidents where no injuries were sustained were four times more with handrails than without handrails. So I'm just reading it out from the paper that I'm writing. Right. Um, and then uh, there's a study in 1985 uh, which says that uh, the rate of accidents uh, is pretty high. It's actually much higher where people actually use handrails to pull themselves up as they're climbing or for guidance and balance as they are descending. And it concludes by saying that people who actually use handrails to pull themselves up may initially have been more vulnerable, which means elderly people. And those who merely use handrails for guidance and balance may have been lulled into a sense of security, which to me means younger people. So, and that tells you why, why you know, they have a higher rate of incidence with, with, even with handrails on. But then it goes to suggest something uh, even more interesting, which is say that uh, uh, for someone who uses handrail has a fair but not certain chance of preventing a fall and avoiding an injury, but there are two further complications. And one being that if you were holding the handrail from the on, outset of the fall, which is you know from the time you, you lose the, uh, the, the balance, if you were actually holding the handrail from that time, then the injury will depend on, or whether you get injured or not depends upon your ability to maintain the grip, uh, the twisting motion uh, that may damage your wrist, and uh, your reaction time after the onset of the balance of, uh, of, the, of the balance loss. Then there is uh, uh, the other condition, which is that if you were not holding the handrail at the onset, the chances of falling will depend on the ability to reach the handrail, the ability to grasp the handrail, and the ability to maintain grip on the rail, which to me means uh, more about the handrail design, the height of the rail, the magnitude of the forces, the body attitude, the, the handrail height, uh, you know, the material and make, the slip resistance, friction, the nosing of the staircases and maintenance of stairs and whatnot. So there's, there's a lot more to it. And then there's a study very recently done uh, within the Health, of Sa Health and Safety Executive of the UK, which categorically states something very powerful. It says that whilst it is true that slips and trips on stairs are a common cause of injuries at work, there is no mandatory requirement to hold the handrails. Research actually suggests that the key requirement is for handrails to be made available, visible, and at, at the right height so that they can be grasped in the event of a slip or a trip rather than being continuously held. And that's interesting. 
because that's not what what we how we understand the role of handrails so suddenly we are moving away from this idea of just holding the handrail to to designing better technologies to design better systems and you and me Tom, we have been traveling for for a while now and one of the things that i i, I notice is that when we are boarding or disembarking an aircraft we are never actually told to hold the handrail which then tells me that uh, you know mature industries forward thinking organizations focus on design they don't really focus on behavioral controls and if you ever ever watched uh, president obama for example getting on and off the air force one i have never seen him holding the handrail and that's very interesting i think uh, what's against- interesting and I, and i man i like what you're saying what's interesting to me is that we're moving handrail from the perception that it's a prevention strategy to the perception that it's a safeguard when failure happens. So we're moving it from a prevention to a control from, from, you know, a, a one side of the event to the other side of the event. And that's a very interesting way to look at these. Indeed. And then you mentioned the word safeguard. Uh, what's interesting is that the study that was done in 1985 actually suggests that uh, you know the best way to, to prevent injuries or, or to, 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 to avoid injuries or the impact of injury is to design what Templar calls soft stairs, which in today's world, we will call it a fail-safe design. Right. That's, that's, that's really fascinating because if you genuinely cared about people falling off from the stairs, then you might as well come up with, 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 a, with something like soft stairs. And the idea was embedded 40, 30, 40 years ago. That's fascinating to me. So Brilliant. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, it's such a different way to look at it. And it goes right back to where you started. At what point do life-saving rules encompass and become life-taking rules? And, and I think this question, Nippon, is really an important question because during this period of crisis, pretty much all the rules have gone away. You know, that's, this is, this is the second bit I was going to talk to you about, which is that how you know th- these things have become life-threatening, and uh, uh, just now I was I was reading this whole idea of social di- uh, watching watching uh, some news on social distancing, and looking at the, some of the, the the drilling rigs and ships. And I've spent all my life on, on ships, and you just can't imagine that design to incorporate something like uh, social distancing. Those technologies are not meant with that kind of thing, but but uh, but. To look at it as a life-threatening thing, you know, staying on the on the on the on the issue of, of handrails for now. If you look at handrails, how you know it has fundamentally changed our notion of what is safe, what is unsafe, what is good, what is bad, what is compliant, what is non-compliant. In, in less than a month, if you look at handrails or door knobs and door handles, they were meant to be a source of security. Uh, and, and, and these artifacts have become a, career, a carrier of, of life-threatening illness now. You know, in India, where I come from, people are using toothpicks and matchsticks to, 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 to activate elevator buttons. They're so scared to touch them. And that tells you something. You know, here's a local solution to a problem that was never contemplated in the design stages because it never fitted the idea of as low as reasonably practicable at that time. But this is a very different world that we're living in. How do you think this will change? I mean, what do you what do you think? Do you think do you think when we get back to normal, read that as when a vaccine is discovered, probably, will we go back to that same embracing of these life saving rules? Well, I think uh, 
my point is uh, that uh, uh, I think we just have to, and this is the bit I was I was uh, I was wanting to bring in maybe at a later stage in this discussion. But I think there's a more important question here, Todd, which needs to be understood. That, uh, and somebody commented that on my on my post also. Well, you know, you have a problem. Uh, why don't you keep things simple, which is to encourage people to use hand gloves uh, or wash their hands. And uh, and if we ever got off, uh, you know, from from this situation uh, where we are right now, uh, I don't know how the attitudes will change. But. Uh, uh, Let's let's just stay on this issue of of uh, you know keeping things simple, as as some people would say, to to to, to a problem like this. And, and in my, my my curiosity is that you know how far do you take that simplicity? Because uh, yes, you can uh, have uh, have the right gloves, uh, or you can have uh, people to use gloves, uh, but then uh, there is something new you have introduced here, which is. Uh, now you have to dispose the gloves. Now you have to make the right gloves available, make sure that people are trained how to remove uh, the gloves so that they don't spread in infection. Uh, segregate the gloves in the safe way, follow environmental policy and, and, and you know all that uh, nonsense. So uh, the thing is that risk is, is not so linear and predictable. It, 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 it is so open, it's so open to surprises in unimaginable ways uh, from what we have been thinking about uh, uh, handrails so far. So I, I don't know, Todd, uh, what will happen after we, we, we uh, come to, to uh, come past the stage of coronavirus. Are we going to think about the life-saving rules in a different way? I think we should. We definitely should. Well, I, I mean, I, I, you're, we have to. Well, that's, maybe I shouldn't say have to. One would hope that we would bounce forward, that we would move ahead, and that we would have a discussion about handrails. And we'd say, can we design a system that really encourages soft stairs? Can we design systems where it's not necessary to touch a handrail and still be safe? And I think those questions are going to be really important questions. Because if you put plexiglass up between you and the cashier... At what point do we think, well, that's not a bad idea and take it back down, or it is a bad idea and take it back down? And and our question is, and I think it's a really valuable question for us to think about, is when when we come back to work, what rules when we took them away did we not miss? And what rules when we took them the, away did we miss? And I think... I'm just guessing, but I'm thinking there's going to be a whole lot of rules that when we take them away, we didn't miss and we got safer. And that's a Absolutely. really interesting question, Nippon. Indeed, uh, indeed, Todd. And uh, you know, you made me think now, which is which is an excellent thing. What I'm thinking as I'm speaking is that uh, you know, uh, so the, 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 we have created uh, so many rules in our systems. And we have assigned departments to maintain those rules now. Now, the unfortunate thing is that uh, we have spent very little time actually actually observing how those rules are used, how they are applied in varying situations. And a classic example of that comes into mind, uh, thinking about the, the Portuguese health minister. Uh, you know, just, uh, just, uh, uh, just during these coronavirus times, uh, who appears in, in a conference, uh, 
you know, there's a state of emergency, and and the video is quite funny actually. That uh, she she uh, picks up a, a bottle. Uh, she 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 takes a, out uh, a tissue from her pocket, and she holds the neck of the bottle and and pours water in the glass, drinks that water, and then slowly puts that tissue back into her pocket. And that's the funny bit, and that's the interesting bit that we have created so many rules, but we have not really engaged with people to help them understand the diversified situations in which you apply those rules. And I think that's the bit that is interesting to me. You know, you can have as many rules as you want, but you really, really need to think about how to apply those rules in different situations. A handrail on on an unstable platform like a ship and the rules around it will be very different from a stable office environment. So rules change, rules shift with the context. Absolutely. Context is everything. And I think what's so interesting is that I think the solution is, well, the, what, we're, what we're presenting to the world is the complexity of around rules. There are complexity. There are complexity around handrails. The answer for complexity is never simplification. And we lean on rules because we believe rules create order and rules decrease uncertainty. Until we get into a situation where we have uncertainty, and what we find is that rules don't create order and they don't decrease. In fact, they inhibit the ability for people to adaptively respond to the uncertainty around them. And that goes directly to the notion of simplification. Simplification is never the solution for complexity. Transparency is the solution for complexity. We make rules make more sense to the workers who own them, or they, better yet, help us understand what rules need to exist and what rules don't need to exist by making the transparent, the coupling, the complexity in that system more knowable. And that is a very, very interesting outcome. Wow. I'm still stuck at the fact that you got 15,000 hits on a LinkedIn post. You're like a rock star. Well, uh, to be honest with you, that was beyond my expectation. And that's what got me thinking, Todd, uh, about the whole thing. Final words. So what are you taking from this? What What are you learning well, from it? Well, I think uh, you, you described it really well. And uh, I think my point is, is there's a couple of things here. One is that we are creating libraries of rules. Uh, perhaps we should think about the application of rules in diverse situations. And this is where I like the notion of expertise, that you build expertise within the organization that can actually apply rules in di- diversified or, or, or uncertainty. And I think that's, that's fundamental. Uh, the other thing... Uh, to me, which is important is, and I, I, I got stuck into it actually, was that the ironies of understanding, and I think you t- touched upon it briefly. On the one hand, uh, you understand something and you feel that you are in, in better control. You know, I'm, I'm, I feel I'm far more educated about handrails than I was a month ago. So that bit makes me really happy. But I think the other aspect of, of, of knowledge that I've acquired is that what I come to realize that all the, the rules and, and, and the knowledge that is based in my so-called risk and safety management system is based on retrospective knowledge and retrospective knowledge to address the uncertainties of the future. And the future, I, I have no idea how these new rules are going to play out in, in, in this uncertainty, in, in these new situations in very novel ways. So to me, I think the most important takeaway is that you, if you genuinely are a learning organization, and if you genuinely want to learn and improve, then you have to start getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, which is with uncertainty. 
And that is not a very easy position to be in because that means you're losing control. And the default position for most people when they are you know, caught in that situation where they're losing control is, is to go back to hold the handrail. That's the bit that interests me. And Nippon, that's the very same part that interests all of us as well. That was really a fun little podcast. Thank you for doing that. I enjoyed that immensely. And thank you for being a part of this. So what do you think? I mean, if you're not spending some time thinking about rules at your organization, you probably should be. Because there's two questions you need to ask. What rules went away when the crisis happened? That's a really important question. And you need to know the answer to that. I don't want to sound bossy. I sound bossy. Then the next question is, is what rules did we miss when the crisis happened? Because that'll give you some data about which ones we ought to be thinking about keeping and which ones we ought to be thinking about dumping. And there's a whole series of new expectations, new rules that right now are pretty easy to diffuse, um, face shields and gloves and all that kind of stuff that we're going to have to re-question eventually as well. This is the idea of this bouncing forward, that that you can go right back to the old life-saving rules. You, you know I'm talking to you guys. You know who I'm talking to right now. You can go right back to the posters that are in every one of your rigs and on all your drill ships, and you can go back to those rules. But now is a really interesting time to bounce forward from those rules and think about what is it that really allowed us to be successful, created reliability, allowed adaption to take place, and moved us forward? Those questions, my friend, are questions you ought to be thinking about because they're good ones to think about. That pretty much sums up today's podcast. Thanks for being a part of it. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends um, all the normal stuff that we talk about. Just keep doing it. That matters. If you've got ideas or stories you want to tell, we got time. I mean, I can definitely squeeze some in for sure. Until then, learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe. <laughs>